When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Maybe it's just that you don't know how to use social courtesy. Oh, that's old-fashioned. Watch how Lizzie Post and Dan Post act as host and hostess. They know that courtesy means showing respect, thinking of the other person, real friendliness. Hello! And welcome to Awesome Etiquette. Where we explore modern etiquette through the lens of consideration, respect, and honesty. On today's show, we take on your etiquette questions on caller ID greetings, reallocating the kindness of strangers, when your cat is cheating on you, and how to sop up all the amazing tasty sauce at a formal dinner. All that plus your feedback on iced teaspoons and shoes off policies. Your etiquette salute for the week and a postscript segment on stationery coming up. Awesome Etiquette comes to you from the studios of Vermont Public Radio and is proud to be produced in Burlington, Vermont, by the Emily Post Institute. I'm Lizzie Post. And I'm Dan Post-Senning. And we have a new pub date for you, a new release date for you for our Emily Post's Etiquette 19th edition. Follow-up drumroll, please. I know, right? Good things come to those who wait. April 25th. We're one week later than originally expected, but we know that it is for all very good reasons, so we are very excited to be announcing that our 19th edition of Emily Post's Etiquette will be available on April 25th. And in some ways, I'm breathing a little easier because it gives us another (laughs) week to get all of the work done that we have to do to be ready for a release of a new book. And there is a ton of stuff to do. And one of the things that we're looking for is a little help from all of you. March was Tripod Month, and we're so grateful that so many of you suggested us to friends and family. And we're still dying to hear what other podcasts you love and listen to. I know. I need suggestions. And I'm always so curious. What do fans who like an etiquette podcast also really like out there in the world of podcasts? And of course, our our interests and our what we like listening to can vary greatly. But we were so curious. What do fans of Awesome Etiquette also love in their lives? So please tell us the other podcasts that get you excited, that keep you listening, that make you download on that first day that it's absolutely available. We're dying to hear about it, and we would love the suggestions. This world of podcasts is so exciting, and it's growing all the time. It's one of the fastest growing new territories in media. And there are so many new options emerging all the time. It's hard to keep track of them. So we're really asking for your help to help us because we both want to know for ourselves and to find new relationships for this show so that we can keep expanding what we do. Basically, what we're saying is we think tripod should just be a hashtag all the time. And please send us your suggestions. But for now, we've got a podcast of our own to get to. (laughs) Shall we get to some questions? I think we shall. Let's do it. On every episode of Awesome Etiquette, we answer your questions on how to behave. If you have a question for us, you can email it to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com or leave us a voicemail at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. Or hit us up on Twitter or Facebook. Just use the hashtag Awesome Etiquette so that we know you want it on the show. 
When do I ever not love our first question? Let's just admit that. 136 episodes in, it's very clear. I always love our questions. This question was titled Telephone Trepidation by the lovely listener who sent it in. And I totally dig it because it's all about caller ID in the modern age. Hi, Lizzie and Dan. I love your show since a friend recommended it to me last year. Since then, I've gotten my fiancé hooked on it. BTW, we are neighbors of yours from New Hampshire, but we just love Vermont. In fact, we got engaged last August as we saw the sunrise over Lake Champlain while we were camping at Grand Isle. My fiancé actually carried the ring around Burlington in a fanny pack for an entire day just in case the right moment arose. He totally wants to bring the fanny pack back into fashion. Anyway, here's a phone etiquette question that he had, so I thought I'd send it along to you. In his words, When you answer a phone and you know who's calling from caller ID, and they're calling your personal line so they know that it's only you, should you pretend like you have no idea who it is and say, Hi, this is Nick, as if it's 1976, Or should you just pick up and say, hey, Billy, how's it going, dog? Because you know it's Billy calling you and Billy knows that you know he's calling you. Thanks for your help and for making my Monday afternoon commute something to look forward to. Catherine. P.S. Your wedding etiquette book has been a wonderful resource as we plan our July nuptials. Oh, so very exciting. <laughs> this is a great question. I can I see why you love it so much. Right. So many thoughts are popping into my mind from what a lovely sunrise that... Engagement must have been, right? Indeed. With Lake Champlain on the eastern shore of Vermont, we get these incredible sunrises over the mountains and the lake. It's oh, really remarkable. And like the view of the Adirondacks over by Grand Isle is unbelievable. So Someone who proposed to his wife on a hike up Camel's Hump Mountain looking out over over those green mountains, um, I understand and also want to wish you just such a hearty and huge congratulations on your coming nuptials. That is phenomenal. I'm glad that wedding book has been a help in your planning. And we could go on and on talking about Vermont and New Hampshire things all day, but there is a question here and there is some really delicious and juicy history for this question also. You're reminding me that we're about at the 10-year anniversary of the iPhone and how much these new devices have changed our world, that they are relatively new. There is a lot of new etiquette around them, but they're also starting to have been something that have been with us for a decade. And there are some new standards that are emerging. And it is around communication that standards uh, around etiquette and manners in particular, the specific expectations that we have of each other, change the most rapidly. In fact, it was Emily Post who first said that it was okay to answer the phone and say hello. That she Without helped. anything else, like just hello. Actually, and it wasn't just on the phone. When phones were first introduced, people yeah. used to say ahoy into right. a phone so that they would be heard on the other end. And then hello started to become the convention because people didn't like this navel sounds <laughs> to ahoy. And Emily actually transitioned that hello out of the phone environment into casual conversation. Oh, that's fascinating. Made it okay for people to approach each other casually and say hello instead of good morning how do you do or something <laughs> a, a, a little more well and the whole issue of identifying yourself whether you had to or didn't have to and i think she really gave permission for you to just answer by saying hello and that's nice and simple i always get a crack out of it i have a really good friend who i always say hey it's me and he hates that and so he goes who is me i don't know this me person and i'm always like oh come on you've got like five people who call your house like i'm one of five and probably the only girl but it's still who's not your mother like 
Well, and then you did this up. to me the other night when I called and you were working on this script. And I, know. I, 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 the phone was answered and it wasn't what I would usually hear from you in that moment. Instead, you called my name out and I said, Dan, this is kind of funny. What's going on? And then you explained that you were pasting this question <laughs> into the show. So I'm glad we finally got to it. It's good to see it. And it is a new etiquette. And there is something very 1976 about <laughs> not acknowledging that the two people communicating are on devices that identify each other to each other when that's pretty obviously what's going on. And I think that it can feel a little um, a little too formal at times to go through the entire process of introducing yourself. Hello, this is Dan. Hello, this is Lizzie Post. <laughs> um, when we both know that, that that's what's going on. And, and you're in personal territory. You're not representing work territory at this moment. I think that's a really important distinction to make because, no, that's going to help us separate out that what we're talking about here is the social sphere. In business, I am still going to really adhere to a standard of identifying myself when I pick up the phone and identifying myself when I make a call. That's going to make life so much easier. And I'm still going to stick to those standards if there's any question in my mind about what's going on um, with the person on the other end, if I'm calling a place of business, if I'm calling a home line, if I think there's a chance that there isn't a caller ID that's going to identify me or if I know that I'm someone who's calling from a phone that doesn't have caller ID or if I've chosen to block my caller ID as I was a just question of say, personal privacy. That's an option too. And so when, when people are used to seeing your name come up but they don't know, that's when if I saw the – I think the line shows up as no caller ID on your phone if if they are calling you. And so that's when I would do my, hi, this is Lizzie, or something like that in order to, to have it creep into that more formal territory again. And oftentimes, if you're not in someone's contact list, yeah. then there isn't a name associated with the phone. So there's an assumption of a certain amount of familiarity that goes along with assuming someone knows who's calling. And there are even little clusters of numbers that I know come from a certain area code, so I have some idea of who it is, but they're not necessarily people who are in my contact list. And I really appreciate it when people in that territory take a moment to identify themselves so that we're all on the same page before we proceed with conversation. You know, how you answer your personal cell phone is totally up to you. But, for instance, like, I would never answer, like, uh, go for Lizzie a la Barney Stinson from How I Met Your Mother. You know, it's like to me that seems like too strange for social calls or family calls that are most likely coming into that cell phone. I have also, however, gotten into some awkward territory. I am still of the habit when I leave a message for someone of identifying myself. Even though on most phones these days, especially smartphones, you're automatically seeing the contact name connected to that voice message when someone goes to play it. So they know it was me who called. But I think it's never a bad idea because sometimes we use each other's phones. There have been times where I have called Pooja and Dan has answered saying, um, this is Dan on Pooja's phone. Or you've, or you've called me from Pooja's phone saying, this is Dan calling from Pooja's phone. And I would probably figure it out right away because you have a male voice and you are not Pooja. But at the same time, it's a courtesy that's really nice to extend. I think it's a place for politeness. I really agree. I, I think there is a, a very common emerging courtesy that if you're in that territory of smartphone to smartphone, but it's not 
you <laughs> that you identify that. Yeah. that the, the, this is sort of a corollary etiquette that's emerged. And the other version of this that, that occurs to me is that if there's more than one person there, yes. that oftentimes there's the speakerphone or the call from the car or the call to the car. And if you're assuming that you know who it is and that it's a one-to-one communication, it can be really helpful to identify who's there. When those aren't the cases, I think that you really do have a little bit more latitude. And some people don't even have house phones anymore. Sometimes we are operating in that world of the smartphone with people that we know. These are familiar calls. They happen sometimes more than once a day. And in that territory, I think that you've got that comfortable latitude to do what makes most sense for you and your personal relationship. I always like it when I call you and you answer the phone, you say, LP! And it's like this friendly, like, excited. I love caller ID for that. It gives you some excitement, like some preparation to be like, oh, that's Dan calling. And I bet he has an answer answer for me on that question I asked him earlier. And I just I love it when it can be that way. And so I'm I'm a big fan of of when with the right friends and family using that that caller ID to your advantage to start off the call on a really receptive, excited note. Contemporary etiquette leaves room for some flexibility. We're all making choices all the time about how formal or informally we want to operate in today's world. And I definitely think this is one of those territories where we can all be comfortable making choices that make good sense. Telephone trepidation. We hope that helps. We hope you take confidence in whatever way you choose to answer the call on your cell phone in regards to caller ID. Our next question is about reallocating the kindness of strangers. Dear Lizzie and Dan, Mazel tov on the arrival of your new baby, Dan. May she always be a blessing. Thank you so much. Recently, me, my husband, and our two friends were returning home from a vacation, and like many, we were delayed in Portland, Oregon, at the airport. My husband, who travels frequently, was able to get us all into the Alaska boardroom until our flight was ready for takeoff. In conversations with the woman who worked at the front desk, it came out that it was our friend's birthday that day. We were all seated catching up on our phones when she appeared with a plate of cupcakes to wish a happy birthday to Dave. The conundrum came when he says, I'm gluten-free, but thank you. She, of course, offers it to all of us, and to her surprise, we are all gluten-free. We said she could offer it to other guests sitting around us, and thank you. What was the proper thing to do in this situation? Obviously, we were grateful for her thoughtfulness, but should we have taken the cupcake and disposed of it when she was gone? Help! Cheers go out to the Alaska Airlines boardroom in Portland. They were amazing and so very helpful. Help, I really love listening to your podcast every week on my morning walk. Gluten-free and stranded. Oh, no. But my goodness, what a kind gesture and such a bummer that your whole group couldn't partake in enjoying this particular gesture. At least from a taste standpoint. (laughs) I just say that, you know, if eating something is going to make you sick, safety comes before etiquette all the time. And so clearly this person's making a gesture. They're not knowing. You want to be incredibly focused on their generosity, but then explain to them truthfully the situation. I mean, this one is, is, is very simple. I think personally that the offer to give them to other people in the waiting room is a great one because it means you're not going to waste it. You're not going to try to hide the fact that you can't. I don't think that this front desk person at the Alaska boardroom had a oven in the back um, with cake supplies where she went and baked these. So she probably went and purchased them. And therefore, you wouldn't want to see that money in this generous gesture wasted. And that's why I think it's really nice to say, 
This is so incredibly kind of you. Thank you so much. It is such a great birthday surprise. Oh, unfortunately, we are all gluten-free. I probably would have included the whole group in it had I known that. So if, if the person they were being offered to didn't know, speak up for yourself. But if you do know, speak up for the whole group. That way it's, it's one easy rejection and not two. But I would say, you know, unfortunately, we are all gluten-free. Um, but we would love it and hope that you would offer them to others to enjoy on our behalf. Thank you so much. This is such a touching gesture. Right? I think so. Okay. <laughs> Such a classy move by Alaska Airlines here. It, it reminds me of when I was a kid and they, they used to give you the little wings when you were flying or they had the decks of cards. There were um, some cool. little favors and there was a, a certain event quality to the whole flight experience. And it's really nice to see that kind of personal service, that kind of care being paid to, to customers and maybe people that are experiencing a delay something that isn't so much fun on a birthday. But I think that your answer is fundamentally sound and right and good. Keep the focus on the thoughtfulness of that gesture and you're going to be in really good shape. The thrifty New Englander in me also gives a hearty <laughs> cheers and hail and ho to the, the, the waste not, want not mentality right. and thought of maybe we could share these with other people here. Maybe we could put them out if there's a place where there's food service going on in that particular executive boardroom. Yeah. Or the staff could share them if that was an option, too. That's another great one to say, oh, my gosh, such a thoughtful gesture. May we return it because we, we can't, unfortunately, enjoy it. We're all gluten free. But we would love for you guys to enjoy it on our behalf. You guys have done such a great job taking care of us. We wouldn't want these to go to waste. Please enjoy them. And pardon my use of the word guys there. You can always substitute in your fellow Alaska uh, employees or the team here, something like that instead. I like that little touch, that offer to return them and, and for them to be enjoyed by the, the folks that were giving them in the first place. Gluten-free and stranded, we hope that helps and that you got home in a somewhat timely manner. Awesome etiquette gets support from StoryWorth. There are some stories about your mom's life that you truly never get tired of hearing. From hilarious to heartfelt, tear-jerking to plot-twisting, mom's retelling of the events always brings a bit of joy. Just in time for Mother's Day, we here at Awesome Etiquette found the perfect gift that can capture all of your mom's stories for your family forever. It's called StoryWorth. StoryWorth helps you preserve precious memories and stories from your mom or a mother figure in your life for years to come. Here's how it works. Each week, StoryWorth emails your loved one a thought-provoking question that you get to help pick. What was your first job? Who was your first crush? <laughs> StoryWorth makes the writing process a breeze. All your loved one needs to do is to respond to the email prompt with a story. Long or short, it doesn't matter. I did this with my mom and it was really, really rewarding. You'll be emailed a copy of your loved one's responses as they're submitted over the course of the year. You'll get to enjoy their retelling of the stories, some you probably already know, or maybe the ones that you're surprised by you haven't heard before. <laughs> After that year of fun discovery and reminiscing, StoryWorth compiles your loved one's stories and photos into a beautiful keepsake hardcover book that you'll be able to share and revisit for generations to come. You can even keep a copy of the book for yourself. Give all the moms in your life a unique, heartfelt gift that you all will cherish for years. Story Worth. Right now, save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com slash manners. That's storyworth, S-T-O-R-Y-W-O-R-T-H dot com slash manners. It's manners with an S. 
to save $10 on your first purchase. And now back to our show. Our next question is about feline affairs, and those of you who are uh, Simpsons aficionados will probably think that this particular question sounds familiar. Hi, Lizzie and Dan. I hope this note finds you well. I've loved getting acquainted with your podcast, and I believe it is my best faulting manual. Dan, congratulations again on your beautiful baby girl. My niece's birth is only about a day or two shy, so I felt that excitement with you. I have a question about cat-neighbor relationships. About a year ago, I moved into an apartment after living with my parents for a few years. While we, my cat Fabio and I, were with my parents, he had the ability to roam. He even had a doggy door to come and go as he pleased. He was in complete bliss. Now, after a lot of rain and some cat fights and living near coyotes, I was very reluctant to let him roam outside. He was showing extreme signs of anxiety, so I decided to let him be an indoor-outdoor cat. While I'm at work, he roams the neighborhood. Here's the problem. He isn't coming home at night. Recently, I found out he isn't coming home because he's found himself in love with the neighbors. They let him into their house and feed him his non-vet-approved foods. They are so kind and adore him, but I can't help but feel cheated on. I am stressing out worrying about where he is, only to find he's in paradise. My boyfriend thinks we need to talk to the neighbors, but I feel that would be rude. They really haven't done anything wrong, but I'd much rather if they didn't let him into their house. I worry he is now confused about where his home is. Any advice or sample scripts for this pickle? Thanks. Fabio's mom. Those darn disloyal cats. I know, right? But come on, you remember the Simpsons episode, Snowball... Take me back. Take okay, me back. Yeah, Help me no, out here. Totally. Snowball, Lisa's cat, wanders into to another home during the day while Lisa's at school and gets fed and loved and like, has this whole second secret family. That's it. That's pretty so much it. So it's pretty much the same situation. <laughs> but it's the same situation. Yeah. So <laughs> Fabio's <me> <laughs> mom here is being so generous. I think that she is really not wanting to place any blame on the neighbors whose heart is definitely in the right place. And – I, I, I love this idea of I can't help but feel cheated on as if it's the, the, the cat's disloyalty that is the <laughs> fundamental question here. But frankly, I want to refocus a little bit on the behavior of the neighbors because I do think that there are a couple of different things that we can separate and there are some clear points of etiquette here. And I like the assumption that the neighbors are really well-intentioned, that they just love this cat, want to take care of it. But we all have to be careful about boundaries in life and how we cross those boundaries. And other people's pets are not other people's children, but they matter to other people. And <laughs> the idea of just taking an animal into your home when it clearly has another home is definitely territory that is territory you want to tread very carefully on, particularly in a situation like this where you're feeding that other animal. That's oftentimes how animals identify where home is. And the idea that this is absolutely going to be okay is I think one that most people would be aware enough about that if you did talk to them, they would understand. And I think that talking to your neighbor about this is absolutely important, is the right way to go, and isn't just advisable, I think is really necessary in this situation. Well, especially when our um, Fabio's mom, <laughs> our listener, writes that this cat is on vet prescription food. My cat's on vet prescription food. So I understand that. And if they go off of it or if they get fed a lot of other types of food, it can really wreak havoc on their system. So that's a great point of entry in the conversation. But we're also dealing with a classic Pav- Pavlo 
Pavlovian positive reinforcement responses here. And so the more this cat gets a positive experience at this other house, the more that it's going to train him to go there. And so I think that you have two points of reference to talk with them about where you can start by focusing on the good gesture, but then bring up the reasons why this isn't working for you. No, I think that's absolutely appropriate. And it's up to you to redefine some boundaries here. And again, I I don't think that any reasonable person is going to give you a lot of pushback. This is your cat. This is an animal that that you love and you're Fabio's mother. And it's entirely appropriate to both make the point about the food being problematic because it's not part of the diet that you have planned for this cat and also the worry that it's causing you that the cat is staying and um, if, if not overstaying the cat's welcome is staying beyond the point where you feel comfortable knowing where where they are. I do like the idea of focusing the conversation initially on how much you appreciate their care for the cat and obvious love and affection for it. The good humor and the tone of your email tells me that you will be very good at finding that particular place and approach. I also think there's some other things you can do that might soften that discussion a little bit. I was thinking about organized cat dates or <laughs> cat sitting or some some planned time that they could spend with this animal that they've clearly taken a liking to and, and, and who clearly enjoys their uh, type of care. Absolutely. And just to, to do the whole thing where we go through all of the different options that you have, and we, I promise we will get to some sample script language in just a moment, but I don't think this would work for Fabio because you've kind of mentioned that when he was only an indoor cat, he was starting to get anxiety. But you could just make him an indoor cat. That could be one way to kind of retrain him away from that other house. You could also just ask that they text you if they've brought him in or some line of communication. But I do think because of the food being an issue and and it being a prescription type food, that it's really okay to have the actual conversation of, hey, can we set that boundary that Dan is talking about? So some sample script language for you. Hey, guys, I was hoping I could talk with you about Fabio. You've been so generous welcoming him in when he's roaming about. And it's such a relief as a cat owner to know that he's welcome and has extra love. But unfortunately, it's conditioning him to not come home, and he is on a special diet of vet-prescribed food. So I was hoping you'd agree to still be friendly with him, but that we could set up a few boundaries like not feeding him or letting him come into the house. Or maybe even just plopping him back on our doorstep if he's waiting outside your door. How do you feel about that, or are those things you think you could do? You get the other person's buy-in a little bit. If they react negatively to it, that's when you set up the boundary and you kind of say, well, this is what I need to have happen then. But I think first asking it as a request is a nice way to go. You can always ramp it up to kind of more of a a dividing line if you have to. But that request is a nice soft way to start. I couldn't agree more. I think that's a great sample script. I also love your idea of asking them to text you if that's some (laughs) middle ground territory that you would feel comfortable operating in. As long as you know where he is, you're okay with him being out. And then he could continue to enjoy his spa time. Um, I know. I love this vision of like this paradise house. <laughs> but if you do need to set some boundaries, it is absolutely appropriate for you to do that. And I think that's a great sample script. Fabio's mom, we hope that this helps strengthen your relationship both with Fabio and your neighbors. I should really let Lizzie read this next question. You should. This one's for you, Dad. That's the title. My father is a huge fan of doing what our listener is asking about. The question is very short and sweet. If someone is in a fine restaurant and wants to use bread to eat the sauce that's left on his or her plate, what's the appropriate way to do so? 
I'm going to start answering this question with a little story about an interview that Lizzie and I recently did with a reporter over dinner. And Lizzie and this reporter both ordered a fabulous entree of mussels, steamed mussels. I think it was a cider, a maple cider oh, broth or something. Yes, and it has this wonderful aioli in it, and it's like grilled bread, and there's just you, you it's the sauce that is created with it is unbelievable. So it's a relatively light entree, and by the time the mussels are gone, there was still this grilled bread rubbed with sort of oils and garlic. And the the broth from the mussels is sitting, and the, the reporter sort of looks up sheepishly and says, "What what do I do here? I I this would be I want to eat this so badly. Can I? May I? Please How? help us." <laughs> so the answer is, you absolutely can. It would be a shame to let that delicious sauce, which is often one of the best parts of a meal, go to waste. I'm channeling Lizzie's father, my uncle Peter, right now. He brings this up when he talks about business dining because I think he faces this himself when he's the out time. there trying to model good formal behavior at the dinner table. And the answer that he gives in formal situations is you use those utensils that are most likely at the at the table in front of you. You can break a little piece of that bread off, use your fork to mess it around in that sauce, and then enjoy it that way. And you're going to be in great shape no matter what the level of formality of the meal is using your utensils to do that. And just to be clear, you don't have to break the bread off and then s- stick it using your hand onto the end of the fork, you can just break the bite-sized piece off. Remember, bite-sized piece is the key here. And then just drop it into your plate very, very do we use the word discreetly? Is that how you would say it? You know, don't make a big high Daintily. drop for a splash. No shooting free throws. You don't throws. need to like hold it against the plate. You know, just a nice, a nice casual drop Let's it. Let's say place it. Place it on the plate. I like that. Place it on the plate, and then you can spear it with your fork, move it around, and you're good to go. And you can do that as many times as you need until you're a member of the Clean Plate Club. I am so hungry after that description of the mussels dish at kitchen table because we're we're a couple hours later than our usual recording time, which is in the morning. So this is right over lunchtime. And I'm going, oh, my goodness. <laughs> I feel like lunch needs to be epic today after reading this question. And also remember, you're here not to see how much or how fast you can eat, but to have a good time. But before we go anywhere, we have to say thank you for your questions. You can send updates or comments to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. Leave us a message at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. Or hit us up on Twitter or Facebook. Just use the hashtag awesomeetiquette so that we know you want your question on the show. So each week, we like to hear your thoughts and feedback about the questions that we answer and the topics that we cover. And in episode 132, we talked about the infamous iced teaspoon. And Emily wrote in with some feedback. And what I really like about Emily's feedback was that, one, she notes that often sweet tea in the South is what's expected. And it doesn't require a spoon. The sugar's already in it. And the second thing I love about her advice is that she gives a more detailed description of how to hold your spoon against the back of the glass or against the side of the glass while you take a sip so that it doesn't poke you in the eye. My description, when I went back and listened, got way too caught up on the potential awkwardness of doing this. And Emily's description is going to pose a very easy, simple solution for it. So even though we're talking about the same thing, her delivery makes it much more accessible. So I really wanted to get this to everybody. Here is Emily's feedback. Good morning. I have to admit to being a person who talked back to my phone while I was listening to the podcast when Lizzie was responding to the question of what to do with an iced teaspoon after you have used it. 
First, let me say that in general, in the South, sweet tea is the expectation and it is not served with spoons as there is nothing to stir into it. If, however, you are adding in some lemon or some mint that wasn't brewed into the pitcher, then you have a long spoon, as you would have if you were drinking somewhere that you stirred in your own sugar, which my mother calls tea with sugar and not sweet tea. In a formal setting, you would absolutely have a saucer on which to set your spoon. But if it's an informal setting and you do not have a saucer, say you're on a porch, then the solution is easy. You leave the spoon in the glass and slide your pointer finger in front of the handle to hold it against the far side of the glass. It's off to the side enough that you don't get stabbed in the eye, assuming you've been given a proper long-handled spoon and not a regular eating spoon. And nothing gets sticky or dirty from setting the spoon down. It's a trick we're taught basically from birth. Most of us do without thinking. Another option would be for people to serve informal tea with a straw, which is handy for both stirring and drinking and has the added bonus of keeping the tea from staining your teeth. I do very much enjoy your show and have talked back in agreement many times. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with all of us, Emily. I really appreciated Emily's advice on this, and I I very much appreciated her better description of how to hold that spoon back and not have it be awkward. Um, And she's right. It is kind of something that you would just figure out on your own much of the time. So I think I had the dramatic recitation of it that was not as necessary. Our next feedback comes from Hannah, who hails from Vermont and who wrote in with a few more thoughts about asking guests to remove shoes. And what I think was so strong about this feedback is that she explains her own situation, but also offers some suggestions for how an entryway and a host can make the request of removing your shoes even easier on the guests. Dear Lizzie and Dan, I found your podcast a few months ago and really enjoy it. I've been listening to it every week, and I'm also listening to your archive as time allows. I'm writing to provide a little feedback about the conversation about shoes off households in episode 134. I have a long-term and serious foot injury that makes walking or standing without shoes especially painful. And my foot is often swollen enough I can't hide it sans shoes. I understand this is unusual and most folks are accommodating if I'm caught unprepared and bring it to their attention. However, it's not an infrequent occurrence that I find myself in an awkward situation. Having arrived at a party or a home I haven't visited before without any advance notice about this rule. I don't like to announce or discuss my health challenges, particularly not at a party or to people who I'm just getting to know. But this kind of rule has forced me to have many conversations and endure a number of personal questions about this injury and the traumatic event that led to it. We would never dictate to our guests to remove other articles of clothing before entering our homes. And I believe that reasonably clean outdoor shoes, no visible coating of mud, etc., should be no different. Providing slippers doesn't help me, and providing an exception makes things just as awkward as other guests wonder why I can't follow the rules, and I have to explain my personal health circumstances to strangers. All of that said, people are going to keep asking their guests to take their shoes off, and so I wanted to tell you that I very much appreciate that your listener acknowledged this kind of rule means the host has a responsibility to provide advance notice to guests and to keep floors clean. I would suggest it should also mean providing a seat for people to use while removing or putting their shoes back on and either greeting each guest at the door to help collect items they might be carrying so they can comply with your request or providing somewhere clean and dry to set items they are carrying, like a dish or a gift that shouldn't be set on the floor or ground. I could not count on both hands the number of times I've entered a no-shoes home for a party with full hands and been instructed to remove my shoes before entering without any way to facilitate that. 
This is a small part of a broader topic, considering people with varying degrees of physical limitations when planning events and sending invitations, including providing advance notice if guests will be asked to remove their attire, to stand or walk for long periods, etc., and ensuring the entertaining space is set up to facilitate compliance with the host's requests. Many thanks, Hannah, Vermont. I just thought that was so thoughtful for a number of reasons. One, I think that Hannah paints a picture of just how difficult it can be when you do have an exception and how even when someone makes an exception for you, that can make it even more awkward for the person who needed that exception made or for you, basically. And I think that that is something to be aware of. And as a host, you might ask your guest if they said, you know, I really can't remove my shoes. I'm, I'm so sorry. I just didn't know you were shoes off house. I would have brought a pair of indoor shoes with me. As a host, I would be inclined to do something like say, hey, what size foot are you? Can I offer you a pair of shoes to borrow or something like that? If I was so holding the line about outdoor shoes not coming inside. But again, that might not work in every situation. I would want my guests to feel comfortable. And that's the moment where I would stop worrying about my floors and I would start putting my guest concern first and ask them what they would prefer to do. Is it possible to go home and grab that pair of indoor shoes they could bring and change in? To? Is it possible to use some sanitary wipes on the bottom of the shoes? Because it's not just mud and dirt that people worry about. It's actual germs getting in. And so that's a consideration. But what I also really love that we did not point out was the idea that hosts, when having parties, should really make sure their entryway is prepared for guests to take their shoes off. Is there space to put your shoes? Is there something to sit on so that you don't have to try to balance awkwardly while taking them off or putting them on? I love the idea of having a table and a dry, clean place to put a hostess gift or a dish that someone's bought so they're not putting on the floor. And hosts... Show up at your door to greet your guests. It's a very common thing that once a party gets going and those those people who come, the fashionably late crowd, that often they're not greeted at the door. And I think it's a great reminder that good host etiquette is to greet every guest at the door. This is such a great piece of feedback. So good. And it took me right into that territory also. And I should tell everyone, my cousin Lizzie spent a portion of her Friday last week helping me move an old piece of family furniture into what is now my coat room, entryway, mud room, and it was brought there to serve the purpose that you're talking about. It's a place that it used to be in our grandparents' house. It was the the two-seater chair to the right of the door where you could lay your coat and put a bag of things that you carried in with you down. It's not the most comfortable chair to sit in. I wouldn't put it in my living room, but <laughs> right. it, it's pretty. It looks good. And, and with a little table next to it, it does exactly what Hannah is asking for in our case. I was thinking this morning, actually, I was, as I was enjoying looking at it, how useful a mud room or an entryway or a coat room is, yes. that it provides a place to do exactly what Hannah is mentioning here, to to welcome people and that there is a human and an architectural component to doing that well. And bear in mind, if you have a tiny apartment and you don't have room for a bench or a chair or a something, or you don't have that table available to you, be the host or hostess who's right there at the door ready to greet guests and help in that situation, offering an arm to lean on if you need to, offering to hold those dishes or take that take that gift. But you know what I mean? Like, be the person embodying that if you can't have the physical apparatuses there. The only other thing I would add here is that for hosts out there for whom this is a preference, for whom it's not a question of safety, they just would prefer that people don't have shoes in their home, that you really do think about putting your guests' comfort first 
that oftentimes there is a, a certain graciousness to taking a hit for someone else. And even if you would prefer your home be shoes off, if for some reason you sense that someone would really prefer not to, you can ask yourself, is this really the, the height of mud season? Could I afford to just say, don't worry about it today? And maybe if you can, you make that accommodation with, a, with some ease. And I think that one way to counter being the only person at the party with shoes on, you might start offering for some other guests once that person arrives, say, you know, shoes on or off, whatever works for you. That way they're not the only person. Hannah, clearly you've given us a lot to think about. This is a very popular topic. It's one of the most visited pages on our website, one of the most discussed questions we posted on our daily Q&A blog back in the day. Thank you for continuing the discussion. And thank you for sending us your thoughts and updates. Please keep them coming. You can send your comment or update to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com or leave us a message at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. It's time for our Postscript segment where we dive a little bit deeper into a topic of etiquette. And today's Postscript was inspired by an answer to a question on a previous show about how to respond to an invitation when an RSVP card has not been included and you're asked to respond. So we started to talk a little bit about how you might do that and the importance of doing that well. And one of the ideas that came up was you want to write a little note and you might do that on some personal stationery. And voila, we have not (laughs) really discussed personal stationery yet on the show. And we thought it would be a great topic for a postscript. So today we're going to talk a little bit about your social stationery wardrobe. And there are really three things to think about when you're thinking about your social stationery. The first are the elements of your wardrobe or the sizes of the the pieces of stationery that you're going to be using and the coordinated envelopes. So there are more options on the table than just the sheet of paper that you write on and the envelope that you're going to be sending it in, the letter in. There absolutely are. And there are really three things that you're going to be thinking about here. One is the size or the type. The second is the paper, the actual paper that you're going to be writing on. And the third is if there's going to be any pre-printed element on that paper, how you're going to do that, what that's going to look like, what it's going to include. Very cool. We're going to keep it pretty simple today because this is a a deep dive topic. And for people that really want to get into this, there are plenty of resources to investigate much further. But I wanted to cover some of the basics. So one of the first thoughts that I have is that I love the correspondence card. I mentioned it in our previous talk, and they're one of the most useful items in a stationary wardrobe. They're really for less formal notes, and they're about four and a half by six and a half inches, and they've got a coordinated envelope that's almost exactly the same size that they fit neatly into. It's very common to put a very simple border on them or to go even simpler and just put a name or a monogram at the top of that note. And then you can pretty much use it for anything. They're so handy. You can jot a thank you note. You can jot an RSVP. You can even send a note of condolence. It could really be just about any purpose. It's a slightly more informal option, so it creates a very personal feel. And also the size really limits the length of what you're going to write. So I think it makes it sort of easy to jot a quick (laughs) note and get it off to somebody. I'm a big fan of these two. We actually use these regularly at the Emily Post Institute, and I find them useful for all kinds of things. Sure. There's also a folded note that's sometimes called an informal and oftentimes used to write a thank you note. It's very similar to the correspondence card, and it's just a simple fold over note. So it's roughly the same size. They can vary slightly. And oftentimes there's printing on the front when the card is folded over from the top. And when you've got this kind of a note, you open it up and you actually write on what they call sheet three, but it's the bottom of the opened folded note. So it's the 
inside portion, but the bottom half of it. Exactly. Okay. Every once in a while, you'll see a folded note where the printing is actually on the very top when you open the folded note. And then you would write on the entire inside, starting from the top all the way down. But usually when the printing is on the front of that folded note, you're just going to write on that, the bottom half of it. If you needed a lot more space than that, you're going to jump up to something that's a little bit larger, sometimes called uh, a half sheet. And this is slightly smaller than a standard piece of paper, but it'll have the name right on the top of it, your name or your address right on the top, usually just the name. And that you write something a little bit longer form, and then you just fold it in half and it goes right into the envelope. So it's a little bigger than the folded note card, but it's used essentially in the same way. And you wouldn't fold that trifold, right, the way a classic letter would be? No. That's for when you jump up one size bigger to the monarch sheet, which is a trifolded letter. And in any of these cases, either the half sheet or the monarch sheet, what really makes it different than the folded note is you could have a second or third piece of paper that was included. And that doesn't have the same printing at the top. The second sheet or third sheet are blank. But then you can run your letter on to a second page. So if you're going to be writing more, if this is a longer form letter, the half sheet or the monarch sheet is really helpful because it allows for that extra room. So correspondence card first, then folded note second sort of adds a a little more heft, a little more weight, although it's still in that informal territory. Then you're going to jump up to the half sheet, then finally the monarch sheet. And you can choose how many of those you you decide to engage with and how many you don't. I'm oftentimes picturing a desk when you talk about a stationary wardrobe. And it can be nice to have a couple options. It can be nice to have a few of the half sheets or monarch sheets if you really want to write a little bit more, if you want to invest a little more in the the letter that you're writing in a social capacity. The correspondence card, great for a quick note, that fold-over note, great for thank yous, great for sympathy and condolence as well. Second question that might occur to you is paper. What type of paper are you going to use? The most common choices are wood-based paper or cotton-based paper. That cotton paper can have a really nice feel. It can up the the quality of the experience when someone's touching that paper, and it's part of the experience of interacting with stationery. So maybe consider a cotton option as a base for the paper that you're choosing, although wood-based paper is also really common and can also be nice, particularly if you get a slightly heftier weight paper. And I definitely suggest also thinking about the weight of the paper that you're going to use. Thicker sort of communicates more substance to the note. and It's more formal. Definitely. And, and gives the paper more of a, an experience for the person, both who's writing <laughs> on it true. and who's receiving it. <laughs> yeah. The other thing to think about with your stationery is paper color. And the most common choices are white and accru. I really like the accru, also known as buff, cream, ivory, or eggshell, but it's a slightly off-white color. Mm-hmm. And I like I think it's easier to read. I think it's easier on the eyes. Now, some people really prefer a clean white sheet of paper. That's common also, but... I think that a crew um, softens the look of the stationery just a little bit and makes it a little bit easier to read. You could also choose a, a light shade of gray, pink, blue, yellow. There are other options, but the most common and the most useful for different circumstances and situation is the white or the accrue. And color is definitely subjective. We all see it a little bit differently. So pick what feels right to you and pick what feels right for the situation. Absolutely. You make a really good point here, which is that This is social stationary, so it's going to communicate a little something about you and your personality. So definitely make choices that that you feel comfortable with and good about. 
The final thing to think about is the printing, the kind of printing. I've mentioned a couple of times that, oh, you might have a, a name on the top of this or you might have a monogram on the front of this or you might get envelopes that actually have addresses printed right on them. And the type of printing that you choose is really one of the decisions that you're going to be making, one of the, the most important decisions that you're going to be making. And there are a couple of different kinds of printing that you might think about. The first we mentioned in our question answer on the previous show is that uh, engraved stationery really is the most formal. It is so elegant. This is a process that's thousands of years old, and it begins with the etching of a name or a monogram or an address on a metal plate. And the paper that you choose is actually pressed into that etched metal plate. Ink is applied to the etching so that the ink appears on what becomes a raised surface on the paper. There's a bruising that happens on the back of the paper that happens from the way that you press (laughs) that paper into that etched plate. And it's one of the things that people will feel for on on engraved paper is that the... the, Is it a bruising or is it like an indentation? It's an indentation on the back. And (laughs) I was like picturing all of a sudden the backside having marks on it. I was like, wait, I don't know. No, no, it's just just a feeling. It adds a texture to the paper. and makes it 3D. Basically. It really does. It makes it 3D. And this is a type of printing that's been going on really, really for thousands of years. It's absolutely gorgeous. It's a little more expensive because you have to produce those metal plates in the beginning. But once the plates have been produced, they can be reused. So once you've had an engraving plate made with your name or your address, it can be repeated. It can be used for the entire wardrobe. It can be used for repeat orders. Nice. So as long as you're using the same stationer, you can reduce the cost of engraved stationery by making a choice that you're going to be able to use again and again and again. Another option is the blind embossed printing. And this is where you use the same engraving plate without any ink. So it just creates that raised feel on the paper. I love these. I think they look super classy. They are. They're very subtle. Most often used for addresses on wedding invitations. Yes. (laughs) Um, But also if there's a design work that's part of the engraving, it can also be repeated and used in other places and can really just be gorgeous and create a a whole new texture to your stationery. Okay. So side story. When I was a kid, I used to play around with my mom's fancy desk in our den. And one of the cool things they had was this giant handheld, giant because I was a little kid, handheld little press that you would press onto the back of your envelope and it had their address and everything on it. It was my grandparents. So it was useless to us now. They didn't even live at that address anymore. But I thought it was the coolest thing to play with that you could press this and create this blind emboss basically on any sheet of paper you wanted to. So cool. Essentially a seal. Yes, that's like a, exactly a, a what family it was like. seal, but uh, 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 but with an address on it instead of like some cool thing. A desk level blind embossed. Yeah, I love exactly. it. Um, letterpress printing has become very popular in recent years, and it's sort of the the inversion of the engraved printing process. In the letterpress process, the the plate that has the the name or the address on it is actually a raised plate, and that plate is then pressed into the paper. So instead of getting a a raised feel. To the printing, you actually get a depressed, depressed feel, <laughs> but it still but creates. Not sad. <laughs> no, no, but it, it, it again creates that textured feel to the paper, and it's absolutely, um, it's remarkable, and and it's sort of a new version of the engraving process. Another new process is thermographic printing, where ink and powder are applied to the paper, and the powder actually melts with the ink and creates this raised, textured feel, and you don't get that the the bruising. 
the feel on the back of the oh, paper wow. that you get with the engraving process. Fascinating. It's another way to create that that three-dimensional quality to the printing that'll stand out just a little bit more than just flat printing where the ink is just pressed onto the paper or the photocopy option where the, the image is just sort of transferred to the paper without any 3D effect. So your printing options, engraved, blind embossed, lettered, thermographic, or flat, the simplest option, just ink on paper. For your paper choice, you're really going to be deciding between wood and cotton and thinking about color. And you're also going to be thinking about size. What are the elements that you want to have in your complete wardrobe? Where are you going to start? Where would you like to finish? And what can you afford in terms of how you build this wardrobe over time or all at once? It's a great gift for someone who just moved into a new house. You would keep a gift like this simple. You wouldn't dictate too much on style. But something clean and simple and beautiful would be a very, very classy gift sits nicely in a guest room desk or in the, the home desk, the fancy formal desk in the living room or den. <laughs> that your kids play in all the time like me. <laughs> and Lizzie Post mentioning playing in her grandmother's desk reminded me of one other thing. Lizzie Post gave me a great shower gift at one point, and it was a stamp that actually had the, the home address of the house that I was living in at the time. And um, it's another option. It's a, a version like the, that seal that Lizzie was talking about. You can get stamps made that say just about anything. And they can be a lot of fun. You can apply them to any envelope. It's another way to start to build that social stationary wardrobe without necessarily having the cost of printing every single item or element that you're going to use. Well, and that one was cool because it's self-inking. And I did it with Dan and Pooja so that it was a shower gift so that when you went to do all those thank you notes for your wedding, you could just stamp those with your return address and you didn't have to worry about it. That is a great gift. And it reminds me, I need to get you another one for your new house. Well, that's a lovely thought. Clearly, we have fun with this topic and we will continue to have fun with this topic. If you have things that you love about stationery, please let us know. I'm sure we're going to be revisiting this again at some point in the future. You know, I think writing letters is going to be a lot of fun. We like to end our show on a high note, so we turn to you to hear about the good etiquette you're seeing and experiencing out in the world, and that can come in so many forms. Today's salute comes from Amy, who finds herself continually grateful to a few family members for their consideration even years after her wedding day. Dear Lizzie and Dan, I want to send an etiquette salute to my wonderful aunt, uncle, cousin Nathan, and particularly to my cousin-in-law, Andrea. My husband and I married a few years back and had what was basically a destination wedding for our extended families. My cousin, Nathan, proposed to Andrea the day before our wedding. His parents and his now fiancé all kept this news very quiet. When I did end up hearing the news on my own wedding day, I went over to congratulate them, and Andrea immediately said, "'No, no, no, this is your day! This is your day!' before thanking me and making every effort not to take any attention away from us. It was particularly sweet as everyone had known that we had gotten legally married at City Hall the previous year and that I had been a little bit worried that our wedding would not be taken seriously or feel as special because of that. However, this act on Andrea's part was just a small piece of an amazing day for me and my husband. But it is one of the things that I think about every time I remember that day. Thank you for your amazing podcast. I love listening to you both every week. Amy. Isn't that wonderful? Reflective salute. I love it. It really is. It's such a great example, first, of excellent etiquette, really focusing on keeping someone's wedding 
special and about them and the experience that they're having. But it also illustrates how these little gestures really matter so much and they can impact relationships for the rest of our lives. We find that getting along with people is pretty important. Do you think you can do that? Oh, yes, I think I can. Thank you for listening, and thank you to everyone who has sent us something. You can send us your questions, comments, and please, please, please send your salutes. We want those salutes. By email to awesomeetiquette at emilypierce.com. By phone, you can leave us a message at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. On Twitter, I'm at Daniel underscore Post. And I'm at Lizzie A. Post. On Facebook, we're Awesome Etiquette and the Emily Post Institute. You can help us out, subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app, and leave us a review. Our show is edited by Chris Albertine, and our awesome etiquette intern is Michaela Veronique.